Beginning on January 3, 1984, and stretching over the next five weeks, five women were victims of some degree of sexual assault in East Richmond, Virginia. Due to the location, nature of the attacks, and similar descriptions of the assailant, police believed that there was a single attacker. On February 5, 1984, 18-year-old Thomas Hainsworth was misidentified by one of the victims and arrested. All five victims eventually echoed the misidentification. Two of the attacks included biological evidence, but in 1984, with no DNA testing available, serology could only determine that Thomas's blood type matched that of the attacker. After one of the charges was dropped, he was tried four separate times, convicted in three cases, and sentenced to 74 years. Although Thomas was in custody, the assaults continued through December of 1984, concluding with the arrest of Leon Davis, a neighbor of Thomas's. According to both men, they strongly resembled one another. Despite their similar appearances and the continued attacks, authorities maintained that both men were guilty. Finally, in 2005, DNA testing excluded Thomas from his only conviction in which there was biological evidence, simultaneously inculpating Leon Davis. After an investigation, the prosecutors joined Thomas and the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project, laying responsibility for all of the attacks on Mr. Davis. Yet, even without opposition, Thomas's case just barely succeeded in the Court of Appeals. But nevertheless, he was finally exonerated after 27 years. This is Wrongful Conviction. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.
Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. I'm your host, Jason Flom, and I want to start by saying this episode demonstrates a classic example of why eyewitness identification is so terribly unreliable and why we must keep working to institute practices that safeguard us against the problems with cross-racial misidentification, as happened in this case, keeping an innocent man in prison for 27 years. And that man is our guest today. Thomas Hainsworth. Thomas, I'm so happy to have you here, even though I hate the reason why you're here. But thank you for taking the time to be with us on the show today. You're welcome. And with Thomas is somebody who our avid listeners will recognize. Sean Arburst is the she's sort of the straw that stirs the drink at the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project. She is an attorney. She's an advocate. She's a fighter. And she's my friend, and I'm super glad to have you here as well, Sean. So welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you, Jason. It's great to be here, and it is always great to be with Thomas. So Thomas, take us back, if you would. What was your life like growing up? Normal childhood. I grew up with three sisters and a younger brother, you know, into sports, into music. Like I said, my childhood was fun and friendly, you know. And you grew up in Richmond, Virginia, is that right? Right, Richmond, Virginia, right. So it sounds about like what a childhood is more or less, I don't want to say supposed to be like, but pretty much sports, music, you know, I'm sure you had your ups and downs like any other teenager, but a series of terrible, terrible crimes sort of rocked the city of Richmond at this time. And Sean, can you describe to us what happened? So the crimes Thomas initially got caught up in were a group of five crimes between January 3rd and February 1st of 1984, and they were all rapes or sexual assaults. In a tiny corner of Richmond that's also right on the border of Henrico County, it was four crimes in Richmond, one in Henrico County, and these are eerily similar crimes. They happen at the same time of day, all white victims, they all describe, I mean, it's a fairly generic description because it's white victims describing a black perpetrator, but they all describe someone who looks fairly similar, someone who typically approaches with a knife, who has a series of kind of odd behaviors, says a bunch of odd things. So the sort of prototypical one of these crimes was either early in the morning or right around dusk. Victim would be approached by a perpetrator outside on the street, and the perpetrator would take the victim to various locations and commit different types of sexual assault. So sometimes vaginal rape, sometimes oral sodomy, sometimes anal sodomy, and would make the victims kind of pretend to be his girlfriend as they were walking around. And when you're looking at a pattern like this, obviously not every crime fits precisely into the pattern. Some get interrupted. You know, in this case, the attacker was pretty easily scared away. This is part of how he avoided being caught for so long. But it's that same basic arc. And these are terrifying crimes. And the first case, the one that set all of this in motion, I believe it was not only the crime itself that was so jarring, but also the location that it occurred in that drew the story to the forefront. So tell us what happened there. The first case took place on January 3rd, and the victim in that case went to her work at a church preschool, and she was waiting for students to come in for the day and was very quickly accosted by a rapist who held her at knife point, raped her, 
and ran away as the first parents started coming in for the day. And so, you know, if you can imagine it, a woman who she's in her late teens, early 20s, she is in a church, she is waiting for three-year-olds to come in and is dealing with the fact that she's just been raped. So right off the bat, these crimes are really horrific and the kind of crime that make you think you're not safe anywhere, right? And I think it's that mentality that really started making these crimes particularly high profile in Richmond. And the second crime took place just a few weeks after the first, on January 21st, and it took place in a grocery store. Again, I think it added to the horror that these assaults were happening in places that we normally think of as being safe spaces, right? A nursery school, a grocery store. And they continued on with alarming regularity because then the time between the crimes started shrinking. So we're talking about on January 27th. So now only six days after the second attack, a man with a knife approached a woman outside of her home and demanded money and sex. She luckily went inside and slammed the door shut and locked it and called the police. So she escaped. Then on January 30th, so just three days later, an 18-year-old woman was abducted, raped, and sodomized at gunpoint in Henrico County, just a few blocks from the other attacks. And then on February 1st, so again, the windows are just shrinking faster and faster. A 19-year-old woman was abducted at gunpoint outside her East Richmond home. The gunman forced her to go inside the house, but he fled when the family dog began barking at him. And wow, I mean, what a close call that was. So all of these incidents happened within a one-mile radius. This guy was almost begging to be caught, but he continued getting away with it. Now, because of the locations of the attacks, the description of the attacker, and the nature of the assaults, Everyone was pretty much on the same page that it was one person that was responsible, right? But what happens in these cases that we see again and again is that there was a misidentification which set this awful chain of events in motion. Take us through that, Sean, if you don't mind. Absolutely. So Thomas was walking to the store to get sweet potatoes for his mom, and one of the victims saw him and said, that's my rapist. She called police, police came, picked him up, arrested him, and then four more victims identified him as the perpetrator. And that was it. Now, these are all cross-racial eyewitness identifications, and that comes with its own problems already. And we find out later that the actual perpetrator did, in fact, resemble Thomas as well, just adding to the confusion and making it even harder for the victims to make the correct ID. But before we even get into that, Sean, can you tell us a bit about cross-racial identification in general? So what we know, and we know this based on now decades of social science research, is that people are not good at identifying people of different races. We also know that white people are particularly bad at identifying people of different races, particularly when those people are African-American. So what we have seen over and over and over again is that the likelihood of an error by an eyewitness is just magnified when it is a cross-racial identification that is a white person identifying a black person. If you look at the actual percentage of black-on-white rapes in the country, it is infinitesimally small. If you look at the percentage of DNA exonerations in rape cases, that are black on white rape, 
it is extraordinarily large. And just those two numbers kind of tell you all you need to know about the enhanced risk of error when you have black on white ID. Yeah, and it fits into the stereotype, this sort of racist mythology that has been a part of, unfortunately, our culture and our judicial system for as long as we've had one. And then you can't look at the cross-racial nature of these crimes and not talk about where you are and when you're there. So you're in Richmond, which is the capital of the Confederacy, and it's 1984. And you cannot divorce these cases from that time period and that place either. Now, Thomas, tell us what happened when they arrested you and what was going through your mind. They stopped me that morning and they said, this lady, she picked you out and she can identify you. And that's when I was going. I said, I'm going to the store. And he said, wait, can you stay right here? She can identify the person. I said, yeah, I ain't got to high. I'm quite sure I'm not the one. So she, you know, they went and got the female victim and brought her back. And she looked at me like she wasn't too sure. And then when he said some to her, and she looked at me again like she wasn't too sure about the person. And then they did it for the third time. They talked to her. And the third time, she just put her hands up. And then they came and said, you was on the rest. And I said, on the rest for what? And they put the handcuffs on me. And they put me back in the patrol car. And they took me to the uh, Richardson Jail. And I got down there. Then when it came to reality to me what was going on, they charged with rape, abduction, and breaking the entry. I ain't know what to think, you know. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company, and by Accenture, a global professional services company with leading capabilities in digital, cloud, and security. Working to reform the criminal justice system is a key pillar of the AIG Pro Bono program, which provides free legal services and other support to many nonprofit organizations and individuals most in need. As part of Accenture's commitment to racial and civil justice, Accenture's Legal Access Program provides pro bono legal services in partnership with more than 40 organizations, bringing meaningful change to people and communities worldwide. Okay, so the initial identification, at least from your perspective, looked shaky, right? The victim seemed to go back and forth a few times until throwing her hands up in the air. Then you're arrested, and eventually all five victims misidentified you as the attacker. All five dealing with the cross-racial nature of this ID, as well as the fact that you actually did resemble the attacker. So you're charged with rape, along with a slew of other charges that came with each incident talking about abduction, breaking and entering, robbery, and then you go to trial. One of my lawyers, they came with suggestion, you know, you got these serious charges. I think it'd be best you go ahead and plead guilty, you know, get a life sentence, get fixed parole. But somewhere down the line, you got all these serious charges, you're going to get a life sentence. And I said, no, I'm not going to plead guilty. There's nothing I do. I said, I'd rather go to trial. And if I could be found get to be convicted of life sentence, I'd deal with that, but I'm never getting my right up to be innocent, though. So you've got your own defense team trying to, push you to admit guilt, which is not, unfortunately, exactly uncommon. Obviously, some people are actually guilty, while others plead guilty just because it's a smarter decision to do so. I mean, faced with the choice of a lenient sentence or the unknown at trial, right, especially when life or even death sentences are, you know, dangling over your head. I mean, with that at play, it's no wonder that convictions are obtained through guilty pleas at a rate of 
close to 98%, right? Over 97% of felony convictions in the United States are a result of guilty pleas. It's a very understandable choice to make. But when given that choice, Thomas, you held firm in your innocence. I mean, that's a courageous and principled stand to take. Now, okay, so we go to the trial, right? Or should I say the trials? Because there were four separate trials. The charges in the January 27th incident where the attacker approached with a knife and the victim fled to her house, those charges were dropped. So for the four trials, though, the prosecution relied on the victim's misidentifications of Thomas. Now, in two of the four cases, there was some biological evidence. But in the early 80s, there was no DNA testing, only serology, right? Yeah. What you have in terms of physical evidence in the 1980s is you can test semen for blood type, and you also can test for something that's known as secretor status. If I am a secretor, I'm somebody whose blood type shows up in my other bodily fluids. So like if I spit on a table, you can figure out my blood type from the spit. A non-secretor is somebody whose blood type isn't in the spit. So they were, in you know, at least a couple of Thomas's cases, able to do that very limited amount of science. But that science, it could give you percentages, but the percentages were pretty big, right? So think about all the people in the world who have type O blood. Well, that's what you can really narrow down to. So, you know, Thomas was in that case in the population of people who could have committed the crime, but that's a really big population of people. Right. So it really doesn't do a great job of proving anything at all. Serology is actually really better at ruling a suspect out rather than in. And there's also a moment in one of the trials where Thomas's height should have ruled him completely out. So in the case in Henrico County, the victim had sworn and believed correctly, it turns out, that her rapist was taller than her. She described the rapist as being about 5'10". Thomas is 5'6". So Thomas's lawyer actually had the two of them stand next to each other in that trial to demonstrate that Thomas was actually shorter than this victim. But this is part of why eyewitness testimony is so powerful, right? This still didn't shake her confidence that Thomas was the perpetrator. She was still 100% sure that Thomas did it. And so there's not much a defense lawyer could do in 1984 in the face of that kind of testimony. So the charges had been dropped in the January 27th incident, but you still had to sit through similar proceedings four times over, where the facts of four very real, unspeakably horrible assaults were presented, but along with no meaningful physical evidence to implicate you. Even the fact that you didn't match the January 30th victim's description of the assailant's height. And now the jury goes out four times on you. And I've got to imagine that the first time was probably the hardest pill to swallow, right? The January 3rd break-in and rape at the nursery school. How long did that particular trial last? I mean, the first trial, that last, I think, a day and a half. The jury could not come to a verdict. And the judge sent it back home overnight and told them to think about it. And they came back the next day, I think, about three hours, they deliberated. Then they came back for the guilty verdict. And um, I was devastated. My family was devastated because the three charges at the beginning were rape, breaking the entry, and robbery. But Lord, got them to dismiss the robbery child, so they left the jury only with two charges, rape and breaking the entry. They came back, the family get to a rape, but the family not get to breaking into the entry. The perpetrator had to break into the place to rape the person. So I was wondering how you can find me guilty on one and not the other. And I noticed something about the jury in all my trials. 
every time their family guilty, they give me the lowest sentence on each charge. If they care five to life, they give me five years. If they care 20 to life, they give me 20 years because they had no sustained evidence that placed me at the crime scene. The only thing they had is her words against my word. So now you're sentenced to 10 years, and I mean, this would seem to be the worst day in anybody's life, but you have to still stand trial in these other cases. Then you got 36 years for January 30th. Then you were acquitted for the January 21st incident, and finally wrongfully convicted again for the February 1st incident and sentenced to another 28 years. I mean, it's hard to even read this stuff. And you lived it. And thus begins your saga of being a number instead of a name. When I got into the penitentiary, my thing was that I'm not going to sit here and lay down and take this. I'm not going to sit here and be a part of this corrupt system. I'm not going to sit here and accept this separate from my family and my life, you know, at the age of 18. I'm not going to sit here and waste all my life in penitentiary. So I had a goal that I'm going to fight to the end. I had things I knew I had to do. When I first got into the system, the first thing I asked for the law library was, and I signed up for that. Then I signed up for the GED class and I signed up for college. So my thing was that, you know, I want to prove these people wrong. Now I'm in a place that I had to grow up overnight. I had to become a man overnight. It took me three years just to open up to people. I did nothing for three years just working with the school. I had to learn quick and be quick on my feet and thinking all the time. And, you know, I had a couple of older guys guide me, tell me, look, young blood, sign up for school, take all the trades and take every opportunity you can get. Some of the guys have steered me in the right way, and they gave me good advice, and I took heed to that. Well, it sounds like there were some good people in there who were mentors to you. So I guess there was a little bit of light in this miserable, dark tunnel that you were in. And now we've got to turn our attention to a very important part of this terrible story, which is that while you were incarcerated, when the rapes should have stopped, they didn't stop at all. They actually increased. They continued throughout the East Richmond area where another at least 10 women reported being attacked by a young African-American man who actually asked his victims to call the police and refer to him as the, quote, black ninja. Now, on December 19, 1984, two Richmond residents saw a man following a woman down the street. He was arrested. This was a guy named Leon Davis. Now, this is crazy, right? So Leon was actually your neighbor, Thomas, and you saw him on January 30th right after that incident. But it didn't click for you, right? The dots didn't connect until you were hearing the victim's story and the witnesses at your own preliminary hearing for that incident. Right. What happened was on January 30th, I was at my niece's birthday party, and I came outside on the front. One of my friends, they do, we was on the front talking. And Leon Davis came from the side of the house. He was limping. And I looked at him. I said, what happened to you? And he said, I would come down to Dobbertown, messing with the white girls down there. And so they said, man, you know you're going to put me down there? He said, yeah. He said, they chased me, and I fell and hurt my leg. At that time, I had only one interaction with him. So then when my preliminary hearing, when the victim said what happened, how she told her friend, and they chased him. I was saying to myself, wow, that was the day of my niece's birthday party. I was at home that day. And I told my lawyer, I said, look at this guy named Leon living in the street from me. I think he had something to do with it. And I told the detective Hart also, the lead detective on my case. But, you know, my worried fellow death here. They ain't paid me no mind. And if only they would have, who knows how many of these other crimes could have been prevented. Sean, tell us about this Leon Davis guy and how they managed to miss what should have been obvious signs. So in the opinion of the Richmond Police Department and the Henrico Police Department, 
the crimes that Thomas was convicted of, those types of crimes stopped when Thomas was arrested. And there was a break in crimes like this until April. And that is when Leon Davis, according to the original government narrative, began his crime spree. I think what the police missed, of course, is that he just never stopped his crime spree. But he was committing crimes that looked an awful lot like, specifically like the last crime Thomas was convicted of, which is the one in Henrico County where he made the woman walk around and pretend she was his girlfriend. And so he was able to keep committing these crimes in an incredibly brazen way until his arrest in December of 1984. One of the most interesting stories, I think, in this case is one I didn't believe when Thomas told me at first. He told me that when he and Leon were locked up together, Leon approached him in the Richmond City Jail and said, hey, you know, we kind of look alike. I've got a hearing coming up in my case. Would you, Thomas, mind standing in for me, Leon? at defense table to see if we can confuse the victim, see if the victim would identify you instead of me. Um, wow. And I thought Thomas had to be making that up because it's too crazy to be true. But I actually confirmed it. So this is something Leon knew. It's something Thomas knew. And even though it didn't appear that the police were putting two and two together, there was one interrogation record of Leon Davis, where he was asked if he knew Thomas. But I think for a lot of the police officers at the time, there's that ongoing stereotype about black men being sexual predators. And so I think it was probably quite conceivable to the police department at the time that there could just be two people who were black men going around and doing the same thing. I mean, it's a crazy coincidence. And you mentioned earlier, Sean, about the fact that these crimes are exceedingly rare. In fact, that, that stereotype is based on nothing. Yeah. I mean, the lone black beat cop in Thomas's neighborhood, he apparently told detectives at the time, like, I think you've got the wrong kid. Like, this just isn't him. But detectives didn't buy it. Even the juries struggled in this case. The January 3rd rape that went to trial first was supposed to be the strongest case. But as you heard Thomas say, the jury really struggled to reach a verdict. And that first case sentenced Thomas to 10 years. And that was supposed to be the strong case. So even at the time, there should have been warning signs that this wasn't right. And someone should have put two and two together, but they didn't. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. 
you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Today, more than ever, we're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. And who has the time? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and reviews your medical claims as they come in from your healthcare providers. Then HealthLock's technology flags and alerts you to any errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud to help you and your family save. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save more than $130 million. Saving on medical bills starts with knowing where to look. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden medical bill errors. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. Okay, so let's get to the good part because in Thomas's case, just as his trials were particularly screwy, the process of getting him out took some twists and turns that we don't often see. All right, Thomas's case first came to our attention because he wrote to us. But the context in which he wrote to us was a little bit different. There had been several people at that point who had been exonerated based on DNA tests done on evidence, like little tiny clippings of evidence, clippings of Q-tips, clippings of underwear, clothing, that had been saved by a particular analyst at Virginia's Department of Forensic Science. After a few of those exonerations, then-Virginia Governor Mark Warner ordered the state crime lab to do DNA testing in every single case between 1973 and 1989, where there was physical evidence saved in these files. The lab sent out hundreds of letters to people who had been convicted and who now had DNA testing happening in their cases, and I was listed as the contact person in those letters. So he already wrote to me as a potential DNA case. But then I got a call from a Richmond Times-Dispatch reporter named Frank Green, who said, there's a case you got to jump on. It's this guy, Thomas Hainsworth. I covered his trial. I also covered the trial of the guy who did it. Frank had gotten a hold of the DNA reports in the case. And it was one of the three cases where Thomas had been convicted. The DNA excluded Thomas as the perpetrator and linked to Leon Davis as the perpetrator. And this was great news for Thomas. But the problem was that we only had DNA in one of the three cases where Thomas was convicted. What we did have was potential DNA in the case where Thomas had been acquitted. So we worked with the Richmond Commonwealth's attorney to get that evidence tested. And once again, it cleared Thomas and linked to Leon Davis. Wow. And it would seem like this is where things should have just opened up for Thomas, that he should have been right on his way out of there. Right. But unfortunately, that's just not the way this played out. 
So at that point, what we had was five rapes and sexual assaults in a five-week period that everyone thought were committed by the same person, and we know concretely that two were committed by Leon Davis. For most people, logically, that gets you to a place where you say, well, Leon Davis did the rest of these crimes, right? Everyone thought they were the same person. But that kind of deduction isn't evidence, right? So even though at that point, the Richmond Commonwealth's attorney thought Thomas was innocent, the Virginia attorney general, Ken Cuccinelli, a very right-wing conservative, was on the way to thinking Thomas was innocent, you can't prove anything in court that way. What you have to do is go to the Virginia Court of Appeals and file something very legal sounding called a writ of actual innocence. And you have to have proof. So we did a couple of different things to try to get us there. Thomas took polygraph tests, one for the Richmond crimes that he was convicted of and one for the Henrico County crime he was convicted of passed both with flying colors. Of course, we don't necessarily believe too much in the reliability of polygraph tests, but it was something that the prosecutors could use to sort of justify why they believed in Thomas's innocence. And then what we had was the similarities between the crimes. So we worked with the attorney general's office and the Commonwealth's attorney to meticulously document all of the similarities between the crimes that we knew Leon Davis had committed and the remaining convictions on Thomas's record. And using all of that, we filed a writ of actual innocence in the Court of Appeals in, I think, February of 2011. So Thomas was still in prison. We were able to get him paroled and released, unfortunately, as a sex offender while the case was pending. We had an oral argument in March of 2011. And again, there was no one opposing Thomas's exoneration except the court. That oral argument did not go well. It was pretty clear that the court just didn't believe we had met the burden we were supposed to meet in the case. In the summer of 2011, the Court of Appeals came back to us and said, all of the judges on the court want to sit for another oral argument in this case. And at the time, in order to win a writ of actual innocence, you had to prove by clear and convincing evidence that no rational trier of fact could find proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And that is, to anyone normal out there, that just sounds like a bunch of like legal, legal, legal boring. It's about as high a standard as you can have. So we did that oral argument. Thankfully, six of the 10 judges ultimately agreed that Thomas deserved to have his convictions overturned and to be exonerated. So we won by six to four. But to put that in perspective, we only won by one vote in a case where the attorney general's office agreed with us, which is pretty extraordinary. It's pretty terrifying, actually. I mean, it's, ter it's absolutely terrifying. Yeah. I mean, you almost lost, in other words, like yes. with overwhelming evidence of innocence, the attorney general, prosecutors, everybody going, hey, guess what? This was a mistake here, a terrible mistake. This guy's innocent. And yet you won by one vote. I mean, this is. Whew. This is what happens when you have bad laws. So many exonerations depend on 
just having a decent person on the other side who's going to wink and nod when the bad law is in front of them. And that's not what happens in Virginia. Winking and nodding doesn't work. So you're stuck with the bad law. So Thomas, from your perspective, finally, you've got a fantastic team and all the things are lining up. Everybody's starting to acknowledge what you've been saying all along, that you're innocent. But you're finally freed with all these conditions. you got to wear an ankle monitor. You're on the sex offender registry. What was it like to walk out into the light, even with all those sort of caveats and restrictions? It was frustrating. I mean, I was happy to be out. Don't get me wrong. Just coming home, getting out that vibe. That's all I want to do is get out from the tension. You know, you come home, you be back with your family. When I first came home, I had to meet with one of my probation officers. I think Sean was with me. I knew that I'm a high condition because I was still, you know, a registered sex offender. I didn't have no problem with that. You know, I'm going to apply to the law and I'm going to be obedient to the law. What I got to do to maintain my freedom. But when she told me that if I choose to date somebody, I had to bring that person down for she can meet them. And she could tell them what I'm locked up for, you know, what I'm accused of. And I looked at Sean, and I told Sean, I had more freedom and rights in prison than I have on the street. It was a little bit hard getting adjusted to it because really you home, you got all the conditions. You still labor as a sex offender and still convicted felon. You still ain't really free for real. I couldn't go nowhere. I had to be in the house by 5 o'clock. I couldn't go out the house after that. I couldn't leave 100 feet from my house. I had this mom, so I had to work around my leg and I had this big radio I had to put in my pocket for the contraction and it was frustrating. And I told Sean, look, we had to get this over. I'm tired of being a registered sex offender. I'm tired of being a convicted felon. You know, I just want this over and done. Now we get to the best part, which is that in 2011, 10 years ago, when you were freed and then finally you were exonerated, formally exonerated, cut that ankle bracelet off. And Governor Bob McDonald signed legislation which provided you with compensation as well, which is unfortunately, most exonerees never get compensation. But I'm really glad that you did. It wasn't nearly enough, but at least it gave you a chance to get started, I would say, with a new life. So what was it like when you finally were vindicated? It's something that I've been striving to do since the day one, that's to prove my initiative, I mean, Sean and Ken Kuchinelli, you know, they did an outstanding job. I couldn't ask for nothing better. I mean, just being literated, being back and getting crimes off my back, get my name stored back, be the person that you know you are, not be who they want you to be, a rapist monster that they portrayed me to be. That's all I want, you know. Once I got my name cleared, nothing else matters. You know, day she called me and said, hey, you won 64. I didn't care. Like she said, we won by one vote. And I did a function one time. And one of the judges who went against me, he got there and spoke. And when he got there, he looked at me and said, Thomas, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. I went against you. I told him, hey, I don't hold no grudge against you. What happened, happy, and I'm free. That's all that matters. That call is one of the best calls I've ever gotten to make. So now we turn to my favorite part of the show, which is called Closing Arguments. And Closing Arguments is part of the show where I, first of all, thank both of you, again, Sean Armbrust from the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project and Thomas Hainsworth for sharing your incredible stories here today and just for being who you are in the world, because I can't even describe how much respect I have for each of you for different reasons. And with that, here's how closing arguments works. I'm going to turn off my microphone, kick back in my chair, and leave my headphones on, probably close my eyes, and just listen to whatever else you want to share with our audience. 
let's start with you, Sean, and save the man, Thomas Hainsworth, for the final closing argument. So what I want to say is that sometimes people listen to these stories and hear them as proof that the system works. They hear them as proof that, well, we got it wrong, but eventually we did get it right. And in every single one of these cases that I have worked on, every exoneration I've seen has been an example of the system actually not working the way it was intended to work. Innocent people getting out is the opposite of what's supposed to happen. There's an extraordinary confluence of circumstances that has to happen to even put someone in a position to be exonerated. Mary Jane Burton, the lab technician at the Department of Forensic Sciences, had to decide that she was going to be the analyst who kept random clippings of stuff in her files. She had to be assigned to Thomas's case. Three other people had to be exonerated. The governor had to order testing in those cases. The lab had to agree to notify people, and that person had to be me, and Thomas had to be Thomas. All of those things had to happen just to put Thomas in a position to even prove his innocence. And then from there, the scariest thing to me about Thomas's case is that the standard to actually win was so high that the court wasn't necessarily wrong that we should lose. That's how high it was, even in a case where innocence is as obvious as Thomas's. And we won anyway. And so his freedom isn't the result of anything going the way it was supposed to. It was really the result of everything going the opposite of the way it's designed to work. So for all of you out here who are taking the time to learn about this issue, which is super important and one of the many reasons why I think Jason is a national treasure, try to remember that changing that system is absolutely crucial if we really are going to try to protect people who get convicted of things they didn't do. Thomas, over to you. Yeah, I just want to say to the Innocent Project, to Sean, I sure appreciate the hard work that y'all do, Peter Newfield and all of them. I can't speak no higher more about the Innocent Project. I just want to say to people, whatever you're going through, you feel you've been wrong, convicted, wrong, accused, don't give up. Stand on your ground. You know, if you don't give up, eventually you will overcome. If you know anybody who's been wrong, convicted, don't speak up for them. I'm living my best life. Things ain't turning where I want them, but they ain't turning out better for me. And I just want you to continue to strive. Don't give your claim up to be right. Stand on your innocent and stand up for yourself. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Justin Golden, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph, Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1.
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.